You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. In this season, and in celebration of the release of my new book, The Failures of Forgiveness, which will be released this September by Princeton University Press, I talk to people who have challenged my thinking about what forgiveness is, its limits, and its powers. If you are wondering how to deal with conflict, relationships, or how to rebuild and repair your world, then this season is for you. In this episode, I talk with Jeremy Reed, who is an assistant professor of philosophy at San Francisco State University. We talk about the Stoics, their views on anger, forgiveness, and so much more. Hello, Jeremy, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Maisha. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for, for joining me, for joining us. You're in San Francisco, and we were chatting right before I pressed the record button about the, the temperature difference, complaining about the temperature difference. What is it, like 60-something, 70-something in San Francisco today? Oh, uh, yeah, it's an unusually hot day in San Francisco. We've just <laughs> broken 70. Um, and it's, a, and, it's 102 know, here in the desert. <laughs> I miss the desert. the desert. The desert is good. The desert is better than the humidity in my view. Um, but yeah, San Francisco has its own charms. So I, 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 I want to get, I'm so excited about this conversation and, and I'm, I'm, I'm so ready to get into our topic at hand. But before we do, I must ask, how did you get interested in philosophy? In some respects, my story is, is pretty traditional. I don't think anybody really comes out of high school being like, I want to be a philosopher. Um, I had a very good literature professor at high school who she um, assigned you know, Beckett and Milan Kundera and John Donne. Uh, and so that was kind of a bit of an exposure. But most of it was I got involved in the church in my teenage years. And uh, I saw philosophy as a way to kind of test my faith and continue thinking about the big questions. Um, and then I was just very lucky in that uh, I had really good teachers who kind of helped me see um, how you could do philosophy in theological and in non-theological frameworks. Um, I had Rosalind Hursthouse and Glenn Pettigrove as undergraduate teachers, and they were both unbelievably inspiring, wonderful people who just made me fall in love with, with virtue ethics and really encouraged me to, to think more about ancient philosophy as well. But the thing I was really serious about in, in my undergrad was music. And so I did a degree in music and a degree in philosophy. And philosophy was just like the fun thing on the side. And then when I applied to grad schools, I applied to some music graduate programs and some philosophy graduate programs. Uh, and I got into the University of Arizona to work with Julia Annis. And she was my dream supervisor. And I didn't get into any music programs. So in that respect, the decision was made for me. But yeah, I kind of, I kind of fell into it. I thought it was interesting. I liked thinking about the big questions. I kind of found in philosophy what I think I was looking for in religion. Um, so yeah, it, it, made for, it made for a nice transition. Who were the Stoics? That's a great question. So uh, the Stoics were the dominant school in ancient philosophy after Aristotle for about the next 400 years. But because philosophers like arguing with each other, it's actually pretty hard to get a sense of really what unifies the school. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of internal debate amongst the Stoics, so even trying to lump them together can be a little bit tricky. 
Um, but they, they, the way to think about it is the Stoics kind of started the generation after Aristotle, and there were these three big figures um, who get called the Orthodox Stoics, and that's Zeno, Cleanthes, and Chrysippus. Chrysippus wrote over 800 books, and we have none of them. Um, so our texts for um, the Orthodox period of Stoicism, early Stoicism, are really not good. We have almost nothing. So Stoicism is mostly understood now through the kind of later Roman Stoics who we have more texts from. So they're working, you know, 300 years after the founding of, of, of Stoicism. Um, and we're talking about people like Epictetus, Seneca, and, and Marcus Aurelius. Um, so they're in a different context. They're working in Rome rather than in Greece. And yeah, about 300, 400 years after um, the founding of Stoicism. Uh, so it's sometimes a little bit tricky to get a real sense of like what is central to Stoicism and what is people developing the system after years of years of debate. But here's the best I can do. I think what the Stoics are trying to do are follow through on some philosophical ideas that Socrates introduced. So I think on the one hand, they're trying to argue against the Epicureans who think that we should think of goodness and happiness primarily in terms of pleasure. And I also think they're arguing against Aristotle and the Aristotelians who want to have, you know, a more, in some respects, intuitive view where Aristotle is systematizing a lot of stuff that um, people kind of intuitively think is right about goodness and happiness. And the Stoics are saying, we actually think that both of those teams are getting it wrong and that Socrates was onto something really important in saying that it's virtue and wisdom that makes for a good life. So all the things that people take to be good and that people think that that will make them happy, even in some small way. So money, good looks, sexy voice, being powerful, being persuasive, um, having a big family, having successful children. All of that stuff doesn't really contribute to happiness in the way that most people think it does. What makes for a good life is how you live your life, not the circumstances you find yourself in, but how you respond to those circumstances. And what that means is often taking really seriously, well, what do we mean by a good life? What, what goes into that? And the Stoics want to say, no, what matters for whether or not you live a good life and whether or not you're happy are the decisions you make and the way that you live as opposed to what happens to you. So I think a lot of the more kind of counterintuitive views that, that the Stoics come to um, that we'll probably talk about, talk about today, I think they're coming out of this idea that, that they're trying to take Socrates seriously and trying to take Socrates' attention to the importance of virtue for living a good life. Um, they're trying to work out how it is that, that you can make that consistent. Socrates didn't give us a philosophical system. He just gave us his life and he gave us some kind of powerful doctrines. And I think the Stoics are really trying to systematize what Socrates was doing. How do you account for the rise in popularity, particularly their rise in popularity outside of academia today? And, and I'm glad you made the distinction. And it seems like what, I, what I'm noticing is that the popularity is more on the Roman side. Um, but I, I wonder, what do you think about that? Yeah. So, you know, why is it that, that in modern Stoicism, they're reading Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius? Well, they're great texts, but they're also pretty accessible. And it's, it's uh, easy self-help life advice. Uh, and it's not necessarily couched in strongly theological terms. The Stoics were theists, but sometimes it doesn't really come through in a strong way. Um, and they just aren't texts by the, easy, by the earlier Stoics that, that you could give to people to read, whereas, you know, you can give people Epictetus's handbook or some Seneca letters and you can kind of get into them right away. So I see, I mean, it's, it's, I'm genuinely puzzled by this as well, um, but in at least my two senses, I think part of it is people are looking for something like self-help literature, but that 
um, that really is quite challenging in a lot of ways, but also that resonates with some of their experiences. So a lot of, a lot of the kind of basic stoic advice, things like think about what's in your power and what's not in your power. Think about what's in your control and what's not in your control. If it's out of your control, you can't do anything about it. So there's no point getting upset. Things like that, uh, you know, people people come um, come to this kind of wisdom from all kinds of different experiences, and Stoicism systematizes that and makes it practical in a way that I think a lot of other um, philosophical systems don't do quite so effectively. And then there's kind of okay, well, what explains what explains the rise of Stoicism at this particular moment? It's like, well, I think some of it is. Um, you know, problematically masculinist in that it's trying to recover a kind of ancient noble masculinity. And that can be put to some pretty bad usages. Um, you know, when people, when they talk about stoicism as life hacks and things like that, I think that's kind of missing the point. But I think for a lot of people, and certainly for a lot of my students, it ends up being a kind of tribute to the potential for humans to be resilient and how you can make a good life for yourself in tough circumstances and how you can recover from hardship um, in ways that I think genuinely work for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people just love hearing stories of resilience and they love hearing stories of how people improved themselves and made themselves better when life was hard. Like a lot of people turn to stoicism after going through tough periods and one of my friends here in San Francisco, um, Caleb Ontiveros, who runs the Stoa podcast um, and the Stoa app, one of the things that was really striking about what he told me is actually the theory lectures, the people who he has on to talk about Stoic theory, those episodes aren't very popular. The episodes that are really popular are the people just like sharing life stories where they talk about these difficult circumstances and, and how they got through them. So I, I really do think that there's kind of, there's a market for people hearing stories of, of resilience and kind of triumph through hardship. Um, and stoicism is, you know, it does have a lot of psychologically useful techniques for how you deal with, uh, how you deal with life when it's hard. So the best I can do is it seems to be, I think part of this general idea that there's, there's a desire for people to, to think about life and meaning and politics and, and especially how to improve themselves and just how to get through the fact that, that life is hard. And I think stoicism does that in a, really direct way in a way that, for example, Aristotle doesn't, um, even though in some respects, modern Stoicism, if you really pay attention to it, they're basically, they've basically made Stoicism into Aristotle. So there's a puzzle about like, why is it that it's Epictetus and these stories of resilience that are what draw people as opposed to actual orthodox Stoic theory um, and the kind of more technical philosophy? Like it's, I don't know, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's about, <laughs> I think it's about resilience and trying to make yourself a better person. And then a lot of the details just don't matter for that. So let's talk about the Stoics and, and forgiveness. So, so you write, uh, quote, that the Stoics provide good reasons for doubting some key assumptions about forgiveness that arise in the contemporary philosophical literature, end quote. So I wonder if you could share with us, what are those common assumptions that the Stoics consider problematic? And, and I wonder if you can explain for us why do they consider it problematic? Yeah, so the thing that's really interesting about the forgiveness literature now is it's pretty clear that there are a lot of people who are writing from Christian perspectives, and there are a lot of people who are writing from um, kind of, I would say, more mainstream philosophical perspectives. 
um, that take something like a Strawsonian reactive attitudes framework. So what is that? Well, it's the idea that basically the way that we respond to moral value in the world is through our emotions and through our, um, uh, through our emotional reactions. Um, so things like gratitude, our responses to positive actions and positive value in the world, and things like resentment, are responses to negative value. And what I wanted to do in thinking about the Stoics is to think about how a lot of the, the insights that kind of more Christian writers give on forgiveness can actually be secularized. And there are ways that the Stoics are, um, are able to show us that there are other ways of thinking about our responses to wrongdoing that actually have a lot going for them. If you, if you step back a little bit and think about some of the assumptions that, that have gone into this discussion. So specifically... Um, the first assumption that, that I highlight is that forgiveness and justice um, are opposed. So some people think about forgiveness as being kind of an option where either what you can do when somebody wrongs you is you can enforce some kind of just punishment or you could kind of say that they should get what they deserve or you can forgive them. And what when you're forgiving them, you're choosing not to basically do what you're in your what is um, what you're able to do, what you're in your uh uh, you have a right to do. Um, and the Stoics want to say, well, hang on, the virtues we think are a unity. We think that virtue is about living your life well. And so then the question is, well, how can it be that that justice and gentleness and forgiveness are all kind of the expression of a life well lived and a life lived rationally? And when you start thinking about that, you, th you think about um, how it might be that always doing um, always punishing someone as much as you're within your rights to punish them might actually be a bad thing. It might, it might be counterproductive um, to various other ends that you have, or it just might not reflect what it means to live well with other people. So I think the first thing that, that the Stoics want to do is they want to show that there's a way in which clemency and mercy and forgiveness can also be part of um, thinking about justice correctly. So it's no longer a choice between justice and forgiveness. It's, we have to think about how these, how forgiveness and justice uh, are more unified. So that's the first thing is just, we sh I don't think we should think of justice and forgiveness as, as alternatives, but as kind of, we have to tell some story about how they're unified. Uh, the second assumption that I highlight is that anger and resentment are necessary for registering wrongdoing. So the Stoics have this really interesting moral psychology where they think that reason is doing all the heavy lifting. So when we act rightly, it's not because we're prompted by our emotions to act in a certain way, but because we've rationally recognized the value of what we're doing, either that it's appropriate or beneficial or good. And it might be that some emotions are in fact expressions of that rationality, but it's actually reason that's doing the work and motivating you. So it's obviously true that emotions can motivate us to act. The Stoics recognize this. Um, but they say, well, in all of the tough cases, if you're trying to work out whether or not it's a good thing to act on the basis of some emotion, you don't put another emotion beside it to work, work out what to do. You use reason. You reason about what you're experiencing. You reason about what you're feeling. You reason about what the emotion is prompting you to do. And if it doesn't pass the rational check, then you shouldn't do it. So it means that reason is actually doing most of the motivational work in, in recognizing when we should act. So it means then that things like anger and, and resentment, they don't end up playing the same role in Stoicism as they do in a lot of other theories where um, it's the anger that's really prompting you to act in certain kinds of ways or the anger is what's doing the, um, the tracking of value in the world. Um, the Stoics think that 
emotions are kind of downstream from rational judgments. So that's that's supposed to start putting some kind of pressure on the idea that that anger is is necessary for registering wrongdoing. The Stoics think that there's just a different psychological mechanism for what's really going on there. The third claim um, is that anger and resentment are generally reliable at tracking the severity of wrongdoing. So this is related to the the previous point, which is it's that well, reason's actually doing a lot of the work here, even if it might be the case that the emotions are contributing something. And one way to kind of motivate this point and why I think the Stoics would find the, uh, some contemporary assumptions problematic is that what a lot of writers do is they want to say, well, I'm not talking about irrational anger. I'm talking about the kind of anger which is an Aristotelian mean or the kind of anger which is uh, a form of knowledge or the kind of anger which is correctly tracking wrongdoing in the world. But in bracketing all of the irrational kinds of anger, I think it, it then kind of changes the terms of the debate because what the Stoics are trying to do, I think, is solve a problem. And the problem is that a lot of our emotions are leading us astray. A lot of the emotions are not reliably tracking value in the world. There are lots of kind of pernicious and harmful forms of anger. Uh, and so to say that you're only focusing on a rational form of anger or a knowledgeable form of anger, um, a controlled form of anger, is to bracket the problem, which is that most people's anger and most people's emotional responses aren't the, re the result of cool, calm reflection and virtue, but are the, are the kind of result of being brought up in a society that teaches you to overvalue image and teaches you to overvalue honor and money, um, and that teaches you to overvalue um, your own success. And so they see most of our emotions as, as kind of the product of a corrupt uh, value system. Um, so it means that they, they want to say that, that when we're experiencing anger, a lot of the time what's happening is that we just have kind of bad expectations about how we expect our life to go, or that it's just that our anger is a result of the event being fresh, being recent, um, and that with a bit of time would actually get the right perspective. Um, and also that, that our, our anger is often the result of us thinking that we're exceptions, so because the, the, the wrongdoing uh, is personal, we take it more seriously than we would if it had happened to someone else. And so the Stoics are trying to highlight ways in which um, like psychological biases, basically, are affecting how we experience emotions. Uh, and they want to say that because there are so many of these psychological biases and because all of us don't have the characters that we should and because we're all brought up in bad societies... Um, what this means is that we actually shouldn't think that our emotional reactions in general are tracking value correctly. So that's just to put a lot of pressure on the idea that um, the emotions are kind of valuable epistemically, that they're valuable as forms of knowing. And then the last assumption is, is uh, somewhat related to the first one, which is that, um, so the assumption is that reconciliation with wrongdoers is an option rather than an imperative of virtue. What does that mean? Well, the, the thought is, if forgiveness is something that we can choose to give or not give, you're kind of making an assumption about what kind of people you're going to be living with in the future. Because if you think that you don't have to forgive anybody, and yet you also think that nobody is perfect, what this means is that like you should, you should expect people to wrong you. <laughs> and when they wrong you, if you want to continue living with them, you're going to need something like forgiveness in order to basically continue being in, a, being in a social relationship with them. 
So I think the thought is if you zoom out a little bit and you think about, okay, well, what should we expect of other humans, given that they are imperfect and have all grown up in, in kind of non-ideal circumstances? Well, we should expect them to act wrongly to us at various points in our life. Um, and that means that if you want to continue living with any other humans, you're going to have to forgive them at some point. So the Stoics, I think, see kind of reconciliation um, as uh, it's an imperative. You have to do it if you want to if you want to kind of play your part in a community and you want to live in community with others. Uh, you're going to have to be gracious to them uh, at some point. So you might as well start practicing now. Um, so I think that's kind of that's kind of the idea where the thought is if we zoom out a little bit more and we think about how the Stoics are thinking about wrongdoing and how they're thinking about human nature and how they're thinking about the fact that all of us have bad upbringings, um, then what we should expect is people will act badly towards us um, and we will act badly towards them. So we both need forgiveness and we need to forgive other people. Um, and that's not going to be optional. So let's, 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 let's talk about this a little bit more, particularly your last explanation, because if, if these are the common assumptions um, that the Stoics find problematic, then I wonder if you can just lay out what, for us a little bit more clearer about what is their view of forgiveness. Um, and you said, you kind of alluded to their view about reconciliation, but it seems like both of those kind of tie into each other. Um, so what, what is the Stoic view of forgiveness and, and reconciliation? Yeah, so I should I should be a good I should be a good historian first and say, uh, strictly speaking, we don't have like a Stoic treatise on forgiveness. Uh, one of the things which is always hard about doing the history of philosophy is working out how concepts map on to other contexts and periods. And you know, there have been some very very good scholars who have tried to argue that our contemporary notion of forgiveness doesn't have a correlate in Stoicism. Mm. And that that book is surprisingly so. This is David Constant's Before Forgiveness. Um, sorry, um, Griswold's Before Forgiveness. Uh, it's surprisingly persuasive. Um, but so the thought is, what am I trying to do? Well, I'm trying to say, well, the Stoics certainly tell us a lot about anger and they tell us a lot about reconciliation and they tell us a lot about responses to wrongdoing. Now, if that's not forgiveness, it's something very close to forgiveness. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, so that's the that's the kind of, that's how I, I want to try to approach this. So if we can kind of unpack those, each of those elements, then we might get, something like um, a contribution to a Stoic theory of forgiveness. So to kind of take some of those in turn, how is it that the Stoics think about human nature? Well, they think that virtue is what's important for happiness, but pretty much nobody achieves virtue. It's an ideal that we aspire towards and no one reaches. So what we should expect is everyone to be broken, imperfect, unvirtuous in various ways. Okay, so the first thing is we should expect other people to act badly and we should expect ourselves to act badly. But also, it's important that we try to get better ourselves and that we try to help other people get better. So wrongdoing, to some extent, is then going to be like bad weather. It's like, well, if you can avoid bad weather or you can minimize the effects of bad weather, you should. But to try to go through life hoping that you'll never encounter bad weather is probably bad advice. Mm -hmm. Good so far. Then the, the, the next step is then to say, okay, so if we are to expect people to act wrongly towards us, is anger something that helps us in living with other people and that helps us to get better ourselves, or is it something that generally hinders it? Now, there's certainly a debate to be had about whether or not anger helps us be better people. So there does seem to be an in-house debate in the Stoics about the role of shame 
And you could think of anger towards yourself as like a, a variety of the shame, where if you're angry at how you acted and how you responded to a situation, it might be that that actually helps you become a better person. So there's an in-house debate about that or not. Some people think, no, you're just beating up on yourself and that's not making you act any better. You're just making it worse. But certainly when it comes to anger towards other people, the Stoics say, well, anger is a way of wanting to harm other people, wanting them to be worse off, wanting their status to be downgraded. And all of those things are contrary to living in harmony with other people. So Marcus Aurelius especially, he really likes this image of that the, the world is like a body and the, the city is, is also like a body and some of us are hands and, and, and some of us are feet. And the point is, your, your part is to, is to uh, what you should do is kind of play your part and contribute to the whole um, and not uh, get angry that, that the, the, the feet got dirty when the hands didn't or something like that. And obviously there is this kind of a pernicious way of, of, of interpreting that where it really sounds like you're supposed to be subordinating yourself and, and putting yourself, like accepting a bad position when others are, are in a better position. But I think the point of the analogy is supposed to be the human body only works when it's kind of all working together and getting angry, a lot of the Stoics are going to say, is, is a way of kind of acting against other people. So it, it means that um, when people do wrong you, what you should do is you should seek to reconcile um, uh, as best you can. Now, the reason the point about justice and and um, the reason the point about justice and forgiveness not being opposed is really important here is that the Stoics are certainly not saying don't do anything when other people wrong you. That's not the view. The view is well, you can rationally take steps to improve your own situation, and importantly as well to try to make sure that the other person doesn't continue to, to wrong others. So there are things that you can do to improve the situation that you're in. It's just that anger isn't the motivation for that. Um, and obviously that's a pretty contentious point. Um, a lot of people do think that anger is really helpful for um, for furthering the ends of justice. But the stoic view is like myself, no like general- myself, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is why I was hoping you'd give the, the devastating objection. Yeah. Uh, yeah, many, many intelligent, wise, and insightful people who have, <laughs> who have argued very persuasively that anger is really useful for, for remedying injustice. Uh, I think the Stoics would say, okay, well, we need to get into the lab here. Um, is it helping and are there, are there better alternatives? Um, but they, I think, I think we would at least be on the same page that um, what nobody is saying is that you should just put up with injustice and do nothing about it. Um, it's that you are to do things about it, but the goal is ultimately reconciliation. And the end game as well is not everybody's going to act perfectly. We should expect people to act badly, but you're kind of um, constantly fighting against the tide. There's a there's a wonderful passage in Seneca where he talks about, um, it's like, look, we're all in a sinking ship here, but you know we can try to bail out the water as fast as we can. And that's about the best we can hope for. So, you know, you might think that that's settling too quickly, but that's that's at least the view. But yeah, tell me more about about what you think is what you think is problematic about or what you think is 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 going astray in that way of thinking about anger and forgiveness. No, I mean, I, I think I think just listening to you, I, I really what stood out to me is reconciliation in some way that's standing out to me more than the anger bit, um, surprisingly, unsurprisingly. Um, particularly because in my, in my forthcoming book, I kind of suggest that there are, you know, there's a variety of ways in which we can view reconciliation. And I think the problem is that people think that it looks one way and you can see how that can be misused and, and abused. And I can imagine someone listening to this podcast 
um, who uh, has a conception of reconciliation being that we continue to go off into the sunset together and they're prescribing to the person they wrong to read uh, the Stoics um, to be encouraged to continue on with them after they've done wrongdoing. And so I just wonder if the Stoics um, just have one view of what reconciliation looks like. Um, is it a little bit more complex? Is it a little bit more, more diverse than our normal, typical conception of what we take to be reconciliation? Because if that is the case, then then I think I, I have problems with that, just as I have problem with with the view about anger. So that just adds to more of my beef with the Stoics. No, this is great. I think I think it's really helpful for clarifying. So so I think the place to look here is in the Stoic theory of punishment, where the Stoics are insistent both that you shouldn't act out of anger, but that injustice demands a response. And so Seneca especially, you know, to some extent, it's it's the dialectical context. So in his work on clemency, he's writing to the young emperor Nero. And so he's thinking about someone in a position of authority. Um, but the view is, is, is you should think of yourself like, like, a, um, like a generous and kind father, where the thought is, if your kid is playing up, something needs to be done. But you don't need to get angry at your child. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to recognize that something needs to be done. Um, and, you know, we're both teachers, and I think a lot of this happens with our students as well, where students make predictable mistakes or um, act in ways that you know you need to call out. But that doesn't mean that you need to necessarily do that um, uh, from a place of emotion or certainly not from a place of, of strong emotion. So the thought is, yeah, something needs to be done. And it would be, you would similarly be making a mistake if you just said, well, let, let's just water under the bridge. Let's just not worry about it. It's like, no, if there, is a, if there is someone acting badly or there is a social situation that needs rectifying it, justice demands that you fix the situation. It's just that the um, motivation for doing that is not because you're so worked up that you simply have to do something, but because you recognize that, that something needs to be done. Um, and so the thought is you, the end goal is, is reconciliation, um, but it doesn't mean that... Uh, the situations which are causing the problem and the people who are causing the problem need to just be forgiven blank slate. So there is still something that needs to be done, but it's especially in the kind of overcoming of resentment and anger towards them um, that that the Stoics think is is helpful for reconciliation. In terms of if if there are in-house debates, uh, again, it's a little bit tricky. Uh, I wish we had more texts. We don't don't really have a lot um, on this. So we have especially Seneca on most of the theory of punishment I'm getting from Seneca and a lot of the reconciliation stuff I'm getting from, from Marcus Aurelius. Um, and, you know, to some extent, I think that, that their social positions and their, their dialectical context is important here and that, um, you don't want to start a civil war if you're emperor of Rome. So it's kind of important that you, yeah, (laughs) you're approaching this in a way where the empire isn't going to fall apart. Um, but if you are in a different social position, it's not clear that the same advice is going to play out in the same way. Uh, yeah, and this is yeah. just, I just, I just wish we had more in terms of what they might say about um, uh, people with less power. Yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I don't know if uh, much of this is a rhetorical question or just a comment, but it, it makes me think about audience and, and what happens when we take ancient texts and attempt to apply it to our current day in a very different way than perhaps the writer yeah. um, would intend to. So if, if it's being written uh, for a ruler, I mean, what does it mean for us to interpret that text as a, as a regular individual part of a polity? 
Um, and is there a direct <laughs> interpretation that we should take and how do we apply that? I mean, that, that's, that's more of a rhetorical question than anything. Um, but let's talk about Seneca a little bit more because I think I read in your paper, as much as you suggest that the Stoic doesn't have uh, a direct or an explicit view about forgiveness, I think I read in your paper that the Stoic Seneca claims that we should forgive everyone all at once. Sounds like the movie Everywhere, all, Everything, All at Once. Um, but the, 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 the notion uh, that we should forgive everyone all at once. And I was fascinated by this. And I just wonder what you can tell us, what does this mean to forgive everyone all at once? And how is this even possible? Yeah, so just very briefly on the, on the point about what do we do with historical texts in different contexts. I mean, I think you did exactly the right thing in your book where you said, what Seneca is describing is not what I'm talking about. And so to some extent, these objections just don't fly. And I think often that's just what we have to do is we have to say, I'm talking about something different. Okay, but what about the forgiving everyone all at once thing? I think a lot of what gets misunderstood about Stoicism is the more extreme conclusions that come out of um, these authors. It's coming out of a really radical perspective shift on life. So especially when they're talking about things like death and sickness and thus the irrationality of, of, of grief, it's because they're like, well, we're just taught to think about death in a really unhealthy way. We kind of pretend that it's not going to happen. I certainly didn't, wasn't like, my parents didn't talk with me about it when I was growing up. And um, it was only through reading more widely that it even was an issue of discussion. And so a lot of it is like, well, when you really think about the place of death in um, humanity and, and how it is inevitable and how it shapes so much of, of how we should think about meaning in our lives, we just need to we just need to have a completely different perspective on it that in some respects makes some traditional expressions of grief irrational. And I think they're making a similar move with respect to wrongdoing. So if it's the case that when you really look at the situations and circumstances in which people grow up, where, you know, why is it that nobody is virtuous on the stoic account and yet they also think that the world is like providentially arranged by a good god like didn't god mess up somehow if we're all turning out so badly and the response is simply no it's we like we're the people who messed up we designed these societies in such a way where um, people uh, end up focusing on the wrong things and valuing the wrong things and they don't know what it means to act well with respect to others and they didn't have the teachers that they needed and they didn't have the support groups and friends and communities that they needed and when you really, really think through that, that nobody is brought up in a circumstance where they're actually being like get they're actually given a really good perspective <laughs> on life and are given the kinds of characters that they should have. And then you combine that with just the fact that life is hard and things like pleasure is really tempting um, and it's just hard to get at truth. Then what you suddenly recognize is that everybody is in a state of like extended childhood or kind of like a um, um, someone who, <laughs> uh, I mean, they talk about really old people and, and children, but I think the children one is, one is easier, which is just, there's a, res there's a respect in which we're all kind of still acting like children. Um, and your response to children isn't, um, I hope, isn't anger and resentment and hatred. It's, oh, like... It's, you know, it's a shame that <laughs> it's a shame that the things haven't gone better for 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 that for that person. And it's, you know, you know, with a little bit more life experience, they might get more perspective or, you know, they weren't really trying to make their parents furious. or they weren't really trying to mess up the house. They were just kind of <laughs> doing what kids are doing. And so when you then say, OK, but at what point do we stop being children? When do we suddenly have 
when do we suddenly get the good characters that we that we should have and we suddenly have the right perspective on life it's like it never really happens um and i think a lot about the the gary watson paper where uh, he starts off by talking about um uh, someone who who performed a series of like really horrible, awful murders, and then he explains the conditions in which that that person grew up, and you know whatever you think about about that paper, it's at least it really effective psychologically at switching you from really strong negative reactions to someone to something closer to sympathy, something closer to like pity or just like a sadness that the world is such that people have to live lives like that. And so I think then the thought is, okay, how do we get to forgiving everyone all at once? Well, if it's the case that everybody is in that situation where to various extents, we didn't get the upbringings that we have, we didn't get the support that we had, we didn't get the teaching that we needed, and we're all handed values by our society that are trash and empty, then yeah, you should expect people to act badly. Um, uh, and, and then it means that you're kind of, you're going into your day knowing the psychological pressures that people are under, knowing that everyone has a history, knowing that, you know, nobody's, nobody's perfect. And so I think the thought's supposed to be, it just makes you a little bit more generous with um, the fact that they're not acting as well as you might like them to act that day. Um, and lo and behold, same goes for you. I'm sure, I'm sure that, that all of us have had days where you're just like, man, I'm not, I'm not proud of what I did today, but it was because of X, Y, and Z. Um, but I think Seneca's point is, well, everyone has an X, Y, and Z every day. Um, and so it, it just kind of, the thought is it shifts your expectations for how you expect other people to, to behave towards you. Um, and so the forgiving it all at once is, I think, a kind of recognition of the, the fallibility of humanity in the sense in which we are, we were never given, um, what we really needed to become, to become fully virtuous people. Is that is that at least okay as a first pass or a, a, a trying to make sense of what is otherwise a pretty mystic sounding phrase? <laughs> yes, I mean, yes. I, in some ways, I just think that. I mean, my worry is is kind of twofold. Um, I think that not all wrongdoing um, are on par, um, and I think that certain kinds of wrongdoing need to have certain kinds of considerations as opposed to being part of um, another category of wrongdoing. I mean, yep. I don't want to be complex here, but it just seems like some wrongdoings ought to be taken more seriously than others. And so yeah, absolutely. put that under the umbrella of forgiving everyone and everything that they did all at once seems to negate or take away from the seriousness of wrongdoing. Um, but it also makes me think about the wrongdoer and it takes away from kind of specificity and individuality and um, kind of unique agency when it's under this particular umbrella. <laughs> so yes, I, I, I when, when I hear it, it sounds kind of motivational. It sounds kind of um, a worthy kind of ambitious goal, um, but I'm concerned about about the lack of specificity in it and the implications. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I, I do get real preachy when I start getting into this part of Stoicism. <laughs> but then you flip the page and then Seneca says, of course, there are some people who are incurable and should be put to death. You're like, okay, well, <laughs> that seems like a different kind of mood that they were in. Uh, just a moment ago. So this is this is why part of the reason that that you know Stoicism is four hundred years worth of thought. We just have fragments. It's sometimes really hard to get a sense of kind of where the emphasis is in the system, 
because you can really emphasize the kindness and the generosity and the forgiveness part. And obviously when I'm writing on forgiveness, that's what I need to do. But I could equally have said, yeah, the stoic view is that you recognize that some people are at different stages of character development. If people are curable, then you should do your best to kind of improve their character and, and, um, and cure them and help them if they're acting badly. But you know, there are also just some bad eggs and they're incurable. And once you've rightly recognized that, then the death penalty is merited. Um, ancient philosophers are really gung-ho about the death penalty in ways that it's pretty jarring. But yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it is I, there are some instances of wrongdoing that Seneca would just say, oh, no, if you do that, that's evidence that you're incurable. So you're better off, you're better off dead than you are alive. And apparently that's consistent with forgive everyone all at once. Um, so I'll just kind of leave that tension happily on the table. So let, let's talk about specificity a little bit more, particularly uh, societal specificity. So, I, you know, I've always been in tension with the Stokes when it comes to emotions, um, as we kind of alluded to. Um, and, and, and primarily because um, I consider oppressive conditions. So as much as the, the, the suggestions that are given are indeed inspirational for our individual lives, um, I can't help but think about oppression. And how, mm -hmm. as I kind of alluded to before, um, when conditions are such, it seems like anger is just apt and it's fitting and it's useful in that particular sense. But it may be, you know, reading a paper, um, it may be I may have been wronged about the Stoics um, in, in relationship to, to oppressive conditions. So I wonder if you can speak about your interpretation of, of Stoic-informed responses to wrongdoing um, and non-ideal circumstances. Yeah, so if it's okay, I want to I want to throw this back to you a little bit. So, can you say more about what you take to be what you think that the Stoics say, which is objectionable? So, about so the you, kind of advice they give to people in conditions of oppression. Right, right. So, so think about the example that we were talking about: uh, context matter, audience matters, and so what you will write to a king with 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 power, and what you don't want them to do, and the implications of that is very, very important which would be kind of a different directive to an oppressed group <laughs> who is yeah. perhaps need to respond to the king in a certain kind of way to get the king to do a certain particular kind of action, right? So it may just be the case that the problem is not what they wrote, but the audience is limited, right, to, to how useful that, that advice can, can, can be. And so it's one thing to say that Nero shouldn't feel ang angry or people who are, you know, have particular kind of weapons or whatever uh, shouldn't be angry because of what they might do. But it seems that, that that seems odd to suggest that a person who's been enslaved, for example, shouldn't be angry at their slave master, right? The context just is, they're just different. And so the recommendation, it, it just doesn't, it seems to me not to, not to, not to be so neat, neatly applied. Um, so that's kind of had been kind of my beef, my tension. But yeah, I mean, I was reading the latter part of your paper and I, and I basically was almost convinced <laughs> that I've been thinking about this and uh, about the Stoics and, and, and non-ideal circumstances quite, quite wrongly. And I just wonder if you can convince me a little bit more, convince our audience that they're not so much um, hung up on one particular context that perhaps the context that they speak about can apply to non-ideal circumstances. Very nice. That, that's super helpful. Yeah. So certainly the first thing to say is the Stoics are surprisingly, um, the advice that they give to people who are already Stoics is basically don't talk to other people like the Stoics. So, <laughs> because they're coming from a different perspective. So if, mm -hmm. if I'm coming up to you as a non-Stoic and I say, Maisha, you know, you really should be, 
you really should be angry less and appreciate that virtue is the only thing that you need for happiness and that other people can't really harm you. They say don't do that. <laughs> That's the wrong thing to do because the the conclusion, the kind of perspective shift that you would need to go through in order to get, for example, the anti-anger conclusions or such kind of strong reconciliation conclusions. That's coming from you taking a lot, a lot of stoic classes and really changing the way that you think about the world. So a lot of the advice that gets given um, for how a stoic should talk to other people is basically like, don't assume they're a stoic. Um, Use the language that they use. And a lot of that is, I think, consistent with the idea that, well, if you're a stoic and you're seeing that other people are angry, it's often going to be the case that they're angry because they perceive an injustice. Now, you might think that anger is an inappropriate response to injustice, but they don't. So you certainly shouldn't try to anger silence them in that respect. Now, it is true that there might be ways in which you, um, you know, after a long built up relationship with them, might try to change some of their perspectives and try to help them see what the Stoic is getting at. But certainly you shouldn't go up to protesters and say, you know, you should really consider that, that anger is irrational and that to work um, to act in anger is to work against others. Like that is not the advice. So that's part of it is just like a lot of stoicism is kind of keep it to yourself. <laughs> um, okay. you should be, you should be motivating the system by how you live and not by, um, the ways in which you're, you're preaching to other people. Um, but certainly on, on, on conditions of, of oppression, I think there is a lot in stoic political philosophy that is, um, uh, perhaps not sufficiently appreciated here which is that a Stoic is supposed to be living their life dedicated to virtue, and the Stoics really do make justice an, an important virtue. The reason I think it sometimes gets misunderstood or, or not, not sufficiently emphasized is because the Stoic has to say, you can't make somebody else's life happy. You can't make them a good person. What you can do is you can put them in better and worse conditions for helping them live a good life. Basically, you can, you can be virtuous in any circumstance, but there are certainly circumstances that make it harder and circumstances right. that make it easier. So uh, just a standard case is wealth, where they think that extreme levels of wealth and extreme levels of poverty both make it really hard for people to become virtuous. So you're, do, you're doing something wrong um, and you're acting unjustly if you're making it harder for someone to act virtuously and you're making it harder for them to live their life well. And that part, I think there's actually a lot of agreement with what, with what perhaps people like yourself want to say, where it's like, hang on, the focus here really needs to be on the conditions under which we're, we're kind of forcing people to live their lives. And so even if you want to say, well, you can be happy in any circumstance, the, the follow-up needs to be, but it's my fault for making it really, really hard on you. And so I should shoulder more blame for, for kind of... Uh, ensuring that circumstances persist where you can reasonably foresee that people are going to have a really tough time reconciling and forgiving and not getting angry. And that really is on like that. The blame is falling very squarely on basically dominant political classes there. And yeah, that tends not to come through. The other thing that I think is important about this discussion is I think the Stoics really are trying to make sense of this Socratic thesis that it's worse to do wrong than it is to be wronged. So what they want to say is, it is true though, that somebody who is acting virtuously in a condition of oppression is living a happier life than a person who is living viciously in a position of privilege. So let me just say that again more slowly, because this, this is important. That 
you can live, the Stoics will say that the person has a happier life acting virtuously in conditions of oppression rather than the person who is acting viciously in a condition of privilege. And they think that because, again, they think that virtue is what contributes to a good life. And it's not only people who have external goods and the best circumstances and the best luck who are happy. Um, it's the people who respond well who, who are happy. And I think that, that that statement's actually really hard to kind of put in a way where it's not misunderstood because you don't want to say that, therefore, it's better to be in a position of oppression. Um, that's not the view. The view is just what people are often judging a life by is kind of its shiny external stuff, whether, again, whether you're good-looking and rich and, and in a position of power and privilege. And the Stoics think just none of that matters. And so if you're looking for happiness, you need to look to figures like Socrates, who by all accounts externally don't meet the criteria. And, you know, when Plato presents this, this kind of same paradox that it's better to, it's better to be wronged than to do wrong, uh, his interlocutors just think he's insane. It's like, the, so this is in, in Plato's Gorgias, where, where Polis is basically saying, wait, so you think it's better to be, uh, you think it's worse to be a tyrant and vicious than it is to be powerless and virtuous? And Socrates is like, yes, that's absolutely what I'm saying. And Polis is like, you're insane. This doesn't make any sense. Why would you think that? And so I think the Stoics are still trying to motivate that. And I think that's part of what leads to them being misunderstood is because it sometimes sounds like they're saying, oh, so oppression doesn't matter because you can still be happy when you're oppressed. And I don't think that's the view. I think the thought is, if this, in some respects, this is supposed to be inspiring. No matter what circumstances you're in, you can still live a good life. But the quick follow-up then is, but oppressive circumstances also make it much more difficult to live a good life. So you should still aspire and you should still try. But if you're the person who's making other people's circumstances worse, you're making it harder for them to become good people, you're making it harder for them to act virtuously, then you're doing the worst thing because you're acting unjustly and you're, you're, you're living a bad life and you're wretched and miserable for doing so. So it's a little bit tricky trying to, uh, trying to exactly pinpoint like which parts of the system are, do are doing the work here. But that was, that was confusing. Is there anything, that, is there, anything there that, that needs tidying up or that, that you want no, to follow no. up on? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm more convinced. Thank you. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> So you, you mentioned your interest in music. You have a BA in musicology. And I, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about your, your interest in, in, in music. Do you play? Are there particular genres that are, that are fascinating? Do you compose? What, what is it about music? Yeah, I'm a big old, I'm a big old classical nerd. Um, so okay. I started on piano when I was, when I was relatively young. Um, and I actually started out my degree in composition. But then I realized that I like studying other people's music more than I like um, reading my own. Uh, again, I'm very much a historian at heart. I just kind of like love studying other people's work and writing um, and putting it in historical context and then understanding it more deeply. Um, but really, there's not much overlap in terms of my my love of music and my love of philosophy. I think you can just like more than one thing in life. Um, and so I like music and I like philosophy. I don't really like the philosophy of music. Um, <laughs> but but music is wonderful and amazing and magical. The way music can affect people's emotions and completely change your mood and uh, the internal logic of music is incredible and so psychologically weird and strange. I just think music ends up being like beauty and magic in ways that is, um, uh, is amazing and feels like a blessing. So uh, yeah, it brings a lot of joy and meaning to my life. Um, but what do, you, what do you listen to when you, when you write? 
a lot of Bach. I'm a real, I'm a real, I'm a real Bach nerd. And I'm kind of, I'm cringing to say it because I can hear people rolling my, rolling, rolling their eyes. Uh, but it's just, it's amazing. It's, it's, I, 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 I think that there is, um, just such a, a depth in, 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 in the classical music tradition that, that I'm familiar with. Um, there's, it's, I mean, it's, to some extent, it's the same reason why I love people like Plato. When you can go back to a text that you know inside out backwards and then still find new things that are inspiring. And when I hear like a new performance of a piece that I thought I knew inside out backwards and it makes mm. me feel something completely different and see something completely different, like that to me is the sign of um, uh, like uh, incredible, incredible achievement. And like I, I dream one day of being nearly as insightful as... Um, as those composers and authors where you can, you can just pack so much into, into your writing or pack so much into, into your music. I just, I just love it. So we've been talking about the ancients throughout this conversation and I couldn't help, but be immature and think about uh, the way in which comedy has depicted the ancients. So I wonder what's a movie show or a skit that you think depicts the ancients, uh, the most fascinatingly or, or one that really cracks you up? Yeah. So this was in some respect, the hardest question you sent me. <laughs> oh, really? So really? Let me give, yeah, yeah. Let me give you a few quick answers. So the first quick answer is uh, in Monty Python's, the, I the knew Life you were going to say, Brian, it. I was waiting for you to say it. <laughs> if you've Hilarious. learned Greek or Latin, that scene is just so funny. Um, I, so I enjoy that very much. What the listeners no doubt want me to say is 300. And what they okay. expect me to say is really mean things about 300 and how historically inaccurate it is and how it's just ridiculous. It's surprisingly well-researched. Three, like a lot of the dialogue and the scenes in 300 are attested in ancient texts. Um, and so that movie is surprisingly well-researched. The fact that they don't wear armor is stupid. Like imagine fighting with swords and arrows and spears and not wearing armor. Like, okay. You have a lot of abs. I appreciate that. But like, you're not, <laughs> you need to wear armor in ancient Greece if you don't want to die in battle. But otherwise it's quite a good movie. <laughs> uh, I was going to say the one, the one that is more apropos to this discussion is, um, uh, I wanted to rewatch Gladiator in preparation. And like Gladiator is a really good movie for exploring Stoicism. I think it often gets held up as the main character Maximus is just like a stoic exemplar. I think it's more complicated than that. Maximus has a lot of emotions and does a lot that um, doesn't fit nicely with stoic doctrine. And a lot of the stoic, like the stoic sayings or the stoic advice are coming from other characters in his life. So I actually think that Gladiator is like worth revisiting as the, like having a discussion about the extent to which Maximus is actually, is actually a stoic because there's a way of reading him where he's really not like he's been encouraged to be a stoic, but he's not. Um, but again, good story of, of, of resilience and, and hardship and the soundtrack at the end is just like amazing. Um, so I think, I think my official answer is I think, I think gladiator is the best movie for kind of demonstrating ancient stoicism, but not in, I don't think it's as propaganda propagandistic as some people take it to be like, it's, I think it's saying something more complicated, especially about the place of grief in our life and the place of revenge, because there's a way of reading Gladiator is like, it's a revenge tragedy. Um, uh, so yeah, that's, I think, I think that's the one that, that is, you know, if you're looking for ways to, to uh, incorporate stoicism into the class and have a good discussion, um, Euripides, Medea and, and Gladiator are both great, great 
kind of pieces of art to, to use in dialogue with Stoicism. So there have been debates about universities getting rid of classic departments and classic language requirements. And I, I just wonder, what is your reaction to these decisions? But also, what do you think is the best defense for not canceling the classes? I must say, I just got finished reading The Secret History. Have you read that? I have. I mean, um, yeah, that's, that's a great novel. <laughs> um, so the classics, it's just, it just, it's just been on my mind. But, you know, as a person who takes that, that, that tradition and the contribution very seriously, I, I just wonder what you, what you think about, uh, about that. Yeah, let's start with let's start with the easy response, and then we'll get into what I think is the harder one. So the easy response is: Do I think that studying history is valuable? Yes, of course I do. Do I think that the history of Greece and Rome is valuable and important, at least for some people to study? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, if we're going to study other cultures, should we do it in contemporary English, or should we put in the time and effort to try to understand them on their own terms linguistically? It's like I think straightforwardly, you should try to meet them on their own terms as much as you can. Like, I think it's just as insulting to say, well, I want to be an expert in Japanese culture, but I can't be bothered learning Japanese. It's like, well, you should. And I think a lot of the university cuts are coming out of like a bigger problem, which is that um, classes that have prerequisites, especially hard prerequisites, have lower enrollments. And so a lot of like modern languages departments have been cut for similar reasons that classics departments are, which is just that they're kind of enforcing prerequisites. And I think that, that that really is a tragedy where there are people who are training to be scholars or purporting to be experts in other people's perspectives or other other historical perspectives and they're not they're not learning the languages. Like I don't know what's going on there. Like that strikes me as deeply disrespectful, not just with classics, but with any kind of historical context or culture which is not your own like you should put in the time to learn the languages and really understand the internal logic of of how they're seeing the world now does that have to happen in a classics department um that's the bigger question um especially given classics problematic legacy in various ways and i don't think it does so for example if classics was just eaten up by history but you know the languages were still taught and the text was still taught um, I would have no issue with that. And classics is really weird in that they've kind of there there have been ways of doing classics where there hasn't been enough attention, for example, to Near East or Egyptian influence on Greek thought and 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 um, and the Roman Empire and things like that. And like that just seems like a mistake where we're not really putting ancient Greece into its historical context without appreciating that. It's in the Mediterranean with a bunch of other people as well. And they're trading with those people and exchanging ideas with them. Like the idea that the Greeks invented philosophy out of nothing is just nonsense. Um, and so in that sense, I do think, I do think it's problematic. Um, but yeah, it should be, it should be kind of, um, it should be taught in, in perhaps a different way. Uh, but I also, you know, the fact that the fact that I've dedicated my life to to these texts and love teaching them, I really do think that there's a lot which is very powerful and important in them, and that can speak to a lot of people. Um, but the the idea that it should have kind of pride of place, um, no, it's I think it's I think it's one tradition you might study. Um, I've been getting a lot into Chinese and East Asian political philosophy and virtue ethics, and it just strikes me as like an absolute tragedy that we're not that we don't have experts like as many experts in that, given how rich their tradition is as well, and how many contributions they make to debates that are still going on. So that for me is the like, yeah, classics is important, but it, it I don't think it, it necessarily should have pride of place in the academy. 
But I definitely think that the the move away from language teaching is really problematic because, I mean, without wanting to be too dramatic, I do sometimes feel like it's a kind of like cultural imperialism when you insist on doing historical studies and cultural studies in English. Yeah, especially if that is an attempt basically to increase enrollment, where you're sacrificing really giving people the experience of getting into another cultural or historical perspective. Um, if you're, if you're sacrificing that, I think, I think we have some real problems in, in, in how you, how you're thinking about the value of history and the value of humanity. If you think that it's worth compromising on language teaching just because it reduces enrollments. Um, and I don't think that that problem is, is unique to classics, but, uh, yeah, language learning is really, like, it's really fun. It's hard. And yeah, like <laughs> Greek and Latin are, are tricky and it takes a lot of effort, but the rewards of being able to, uh, to see things in the perspective of another language is so cool. And, you know, humans are very good at learning languages. And, you know, there there are whole countries and whole people who are multilingual. Like, it's not, you know, language learning is not great in New Zealand, so I don't just want to be mean to people in the US. <laughs> but, like, there is something peculiar about English-speaking nations where they're, like, two languages in one head. It's impossible. It's like, no, it's people do this all the time. It's, you know, it takes practice and it takes time, but it's not, it's not impossible and it's very rewarding. So I, if anything, I wish that there was more emphasis on language, language learning and whether it's um, Greek or Chinese, I don't, I don't really mind. I mean, I think you should learn the language of whatever culture you're fascinated by or whatever historical period you're fascinated by. Um, I think you should learn those languages. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for this conversation. I, I, I really, I really learned a lot. My mind has been changed on some views in relationship to the Stoics. Um, so, so thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. For more access to the Unmute podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.